Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Notes from the Ivy League. I hope you had a phenomenal week. And I'm your host, Andrew Williams, and I'm here with Hung Pham, a Yale grad who studied art history and biomedical studies. And he's currently a 10th grade chemistry teacher, department chair, and 12th grade administrator at Richmond High in California. Hung, it's so fantastic to have you on the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really humbled. Excited to be here. I mentioned a little bit of your bio, but would you mind sharing more of your personal story with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, considering our audience, I'll suppose I'll start from, from Yale. Uh, so I, I graduated from Yale in 2015. Uh, I was pre-med at the time. And since graduating uh, in 2015, I've been in my home community, sort of the Northern Bay Area at Richmond High. Uh, been really loving it so far in terms of the opportunity to leverage my first-generation low-income narrative to inspire my students um, and to, to do that as well through the content and the skills that I'm teaching them um, as a 10th grade chemistry teacher. Could you talk more about your, your upbringing, your, your experience in high school, and how you even thought about applying to selective schools? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so we're going to go way back then. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so I am the oldest child out of four born to two Vietnam War refugees. And my parents immigrated to Minnesota of all places after the war <laughs> and had me there. And, uh, the snow was a little bit much for them. So we moved to California when I was four and I was, uh, I've been raised there ever since. Um, so growing up uh, in Vallejo, California, which I consider to be my hometown, uh, Vallejo actually was bankrupt during the time that I was raised there. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, and the public school system was getting a little rocky. There, was, uh, there were droves of people leaving the city um, because of the failing school system. And the peers uh, I went to school with, um, so most of them sort of went to local schools. But uh, I knew that for me, I wanted to do something different. And I think what catalyzed that was a summer program I did uh, after my junior year called Leadership Enterprise for a Diverse America, um, LEDA. And that was at Princeton for seven weeks. And that program, a part of it uh, was college admissions prep, but I think the most inspiring part was the college tour where they took us up and down the uh, Northeastern seaboard. And one of those schools that we got to visit was Yale. So I knew right then after I got back from summer was, okay, Yale's gonna be my goal. Um, and at the time, there, there, there hadn't been any students from my high school, Jesse Bethel High School in Vallejo, who had gone to Yale. So I was excited to hopefully uh, set that precedent, though I knew that uh, the probability of me getting was, was pretty low. So my, my feet were still on the ground. Um, and so I, I was mostly a bookworm in, in high school, definitely studied my butt off. And I think one of the, the core motivators was my family's financial situation. Mm -hmm. uh, we uh, yeah, grew up where money was pretty tight. My dad has been and is still working as a day laborer. So he cuts grass and does a lot of yard work for a living. And my mom is a manicurist, um, which is uh, one of the sort of stereotypes of Vietnamese mothers in this country. But she works uh, about 12 hours a day, six days a week, um, and uh, no benefits. So. She gets income when she goes to work and if she's sick or somehow doesn't show up, then she doesn't get income for that day. So it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty rough. Um, and I think seeing my parents work as hard as they do in those conditions motivated me to sort of materialize whatever their conception of the American dream was, um, both for them and for myself as well. 
So eventually I got into both uh, Yale and Stanford and both of them were my top choices, but I decided to go to Yale um, because of the visit that I had during my time at the LIDA summer program. And, uh, and I fell in love with it during Bulldog Days when I, um, the, the campus visitation program that they had. Um, and, uh, and so I enrolled. Um, but to tell you the truth, Andrew, when I got there, I was definitely disillusioned, um, especially, yeah, especially um, a couple of days within, uh, a couple of days into uh, Camp Yale, sort of that period before uh, the classes officially start freshman year. I think there was sort of this uh, ambiance of, uh, of joy, of giddiness, and of people sort of uh, expressing their, their, their excitement about this freshness, this newness, uh, this newness of, of college. And to sort of fit in, I, I played along with that as well, but I, I, it was that life experience, that moment in time that made me realize how poor I really was growing up, mm-hmm. just sort of subconsciously comparing myself to all of this opulence that I was suddenly surrounded with um, and it, it, it was so intimidating that I, I felt foreign in a school that had sent me a letter saying that they wanted me there. I woke up every morning and went to bed every night crying for the first two weeks because I was so homesick, Andrew. And it wasn't your typical, like, I miss my mom's cooking and I miss my dog kind of homesick, but I felt, I felt out of place and I had such difficulty socioeconomically adjusting. Um, but what helped was taking baby steps in my chemistry class to sort of network with people who were from California and then going further from there, meeting people who were from California, but also from the Bay Area and then meeting people sort of from the same socioeconomic um, groups as well. Um, so I think taking that initiative to connect with people um, who were somewhat similar to, to me, I think really helped ease that, that homesickness freshman year. Um, uh, the majority of my, my college career, I think, was sort of speaking specifically about my first-gen low-income narrative. I think a lot of it was characterized by shame and by embarrassment um, uh, that I felt freshman year that didn't quite subside until uh, spring semester of senior year, actually. Um, I mean, late is better than never, but mm-hmm. I, I like to say that better <laughs> Uh, never late is better. But anyways, uh, it was it was spring of my senior year where um, that was the inaugural uh, year of the IVG conference hosted at Brown. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was really exciting to one, be one of the founding members of Yale's uh, UFLIP group, the undergraduate first generation low income partnership, but also to sort of be on the ground while the team at Brown, Stanley, and uh, all, all of those folks were developing IVG um, and sort of uh, giving birth to their vision. And so I was part of the founding Yale uh, group that attended IBG. And it was at IBG that I realized that uh, contrary to what I had previously believed about sort of hiding away my first-gen low-income narrative because maybe p- people shouldn't hear about it or that sharing and embracing that sort of, that, that, that part of my history would somehow undermine um, people's conceptions of me or uh, discourage people from taking me seriously. Um, but after IVG, it was, it was like a total 180. I mean, I just, 360 even, I just totally changed my mindset about how I approached my story and started sort of embracing myself unapologetically mm-hmm. um, and really like extracting pride out of that part of who, who I was. And I'll give you a story that sort of uh, is testimony to all of this. 
So one evening after the IBG conference, I was in the basement of Pearson. Pearson was the residential college that I lived in at Yale. And there was a student I, I, I knew sort of at a distance. He was more of an acquaintance. But this particular student, who at the time uh, during laundry was wearing salmon shorts, um, but I'll get to that more later. Um, yeah, you know, with the salmon shorts and all of that, the loafers. Yeah. Anyways, so this student actually, freshman year, he was, one, he was on one of the athletic teams. I can't remember which, but a taller guy, definitely from a, a background of privilege, just from the conversations that you've, you have with him. He jokingly, like, he would, he would, I overheard him call certain people, like, poor, like, that is a poor, or he is a poor, or she is a poor, using poor, the adjective, as a noun to describe people based on what they looked like. And so if people were more lounging, were wearing sweats, I, I noticed that he would call them a poor. And I was one of those people who walked in and, and, and he, he labeled that uh, with. And so I saw him again in the laundry room. And I kid you not, Andrew, he was doing his laundry with, you know, the Tide Pod individually wrapped laundry packets. Mm -hmm. So those you're actually supposed to put in the washing machine itself. But he was like jamming them into the, <laughs> the detergent dispenser. And I, 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 it was so difficult to like not laugh, but I, I went ahead and like loaded my laundry, ran upstairs to my dorm room and I had to call my mom. And I told my mom, mom, like, you'll never believe like this kid doesn't know how to do his own laundry. And I'm sure like he's, you know, had access to and resources for people like teaching him how to do his own laundry. And I think this connects to what I learned at IVG because you know, like I know how to take care of myself because mm -hmm. of my upbringing. I know how to take care of myself because my parents taught me that. Um, and that's something again, that I learned know, a little later than I would have preferred uh, to be really proud of. Yeah, and like, you mentioned a lot of a lot of great things, like, um, so many people, myself included, growing up, right? Yeah, like they, they try to hide this identity. But then there are so many positives that come out of it, right? Like perseverance, mm -hmm. resourcefulness, grit, all the things you mentioned. And then also, I think a positive mindset has to come along with it. If you for sure start out in, in poverty, like I did. Yeah. Um, and you still, you still believe and dream that you want to go to, you know, a school like Yale or Stanford. Right. Um, yeah. And then I, one thing that I didn't really think about until now is that one of the stresses of being first gen or low income mm -hmm. um, is that we had to build a network in a community on the fly Right. While more privileged people already had that network that's familiar with those spaces like Yale or like Harvard or what what have you. Um, mm -hmm. And I didn't really think about it until you, you, you mentioned when you attended the IBG conference. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like that's so exhausting to have to learn the ropes while trying to connect with people while trying oh, to keep up your grades and work. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, for sure. I definitely worked. Speaking of work, I definitely worked. And I sent money home. I worked fall semester of sophomore year where um, I was taking night classes at Yale Health, the Yale mm -hmm. Health Student Center, um, to become an EMT and paramedic. And I was taking organic chemistry at the same time, one of the, oh. the more difficult uh, pre-med classes. And, um, but in addition to that, I was also working at the Yale School of Medicine at the, as a textbook clerk um, at sending money home to my family because it was during that period that California actually cut my family's food stamps. So they were having a really difficult time feeding themselves at home. So here I was like literally working 19 hours a week, which was Yale's like 
maximum allowed hours for undergrads. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I just, I just feel like little, like, mini vignettes like that like, mm -hmm. often get lost that I, that I do want to share. You know, like it's, <laughs> the struggle is real. Yeah. Um, and then this is a thing that I think a lot of universities and colleges, they're not really considering when they're actively, like, seeking out first-gen and low-income students, but they're mm -hmm. not understanding, not providing the resources that allow mm -hmm. them to, like, really succeed or have it, it, the best experience as they can. Um, mm -hmm. And if any other kind of student at Yale was told, oh, yeah, by the way, you have to work the maximum amount of time mm -hmm. and then send money home, and you're, you're still expected to have good grades. Right. Um, yeah. They would be like, oh, why, why would I go to this school? You know? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it's good that you, you made it through. Like, that's, yeah. that's a, a testament to, to who you are. Because, like, yeah, that's, that's rough, man. Like, because for so many people, food stamps is, like, a necessity. Right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and I, it's part of my, my hopes for this podcast is that maybe a high-ranking admin at leader institutions in the mm -hmm. country, they'll, he they'll hear these stories, and then maybe, just maybe, they'll think, oh, yeah, we, gotta do we, we can and we have to do so much better. Um, yeah. And kind of put it more on the fast track. Because, like, like me, I, I, I broke the rule at Yale. I worked full-time. Mm, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> not, yeah, I worked full-time full freshman through junior year. Wow, that's a lot. Um, yeah, worked at the Atham House, worked at the yeah. Peabody mm -hmm. Museum. Mm -hmm. I was a, mm -hmm. um, a research assistant, and I did graphic design on the side. I, I, oh, wow. I just, yeah. Um, yeah, Renaissance, man. But you have to do what you have to do. Like that's like that's a weird. Yeah, like, exactly. Yep. You like it's in many ways it's it's not fun, but other ways you learn so many. You have to learn so many skills and how to survive, um, and how to be resourceful. So that I think in the long term, these skills that we've learned are going to benefit us way more than if we had everything handed to us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm just I just want to make like make the experience better for future generations um, yeah for sure and then now like this the like people are coming into their first gen low-income identity a whole lot more now yeah um, absolutely yeah i'm really excited witness especially at yale um mm -hmm. but in the ivy league as a whole um i think i think the group at brown that uh, started the uh, or planted the seed for IBG and, and similar groups to sort of spawn um, did a really good job of like sparking this national conversation that we're starting to have about um, the subpopulation of, of students. And actually, Andrew, a couple of days ago, I read uh, online that the New Haven Register, the newspaper for the city of New Haven, published an article about several Yale students being arrested because they actually staged a sit-in in the financial office uh, in protest of the student contribution. Do you remember that? The student contribution? Oh, yes. I, I remember the student contribution. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, and how, like, how a challenging that could be for, for some students who uh, go home and perhaps work with their families during the summer um, or, or, or want to go abroad and study abroad, but they don't have the opportunity to, to pay that student contribution. 
Yeah, and, and I think the schools might not be recognizing um, the effect, like the compounding effect it has when you have these low-income and first-gen students come here, you don't feed them over breaks, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and then you say, oh, by the way, you have to make money over the summer. Like, was it like, like $5,000 or something? I don't know. I remember mine being $5,000. Wait, you said you remember it being that much? Yeah. You said no? I do. Oh, okay. okay. Um, yeah, like 5000 over the summer. But then when you graduate, every job is going to ask you, oh, what did you do over the summer? And like, right, yeah. if they're like, a, you know, a more open-minded employer, when you mm-hmm. say, oh, I went home to work, they're, they're not going to have a problem with it. Yeah. But for so many fields, it's like, oh, you didn't do an internship every summer for your undergrad career? I'm sorry. Like, right. And yeah, these schools need to realize that there needs to be more support. Um, right. I think an important point also is for this conversation to not only involve the, the, the people that it directly affects, namely us first-generation low-income folks, but I think also to sort of develop the skills and potential allies and advocates who can mm-hmm. sort of pass us the mic um, when, if, if and when appropriate, um, sort of in this national dialogue that we're uh, that we're having that I think is uh, the, getting more and more mom- momentum in terms of like, okay, well, if I get an unpaid internship and that's okay to me, what does that say about a peer who goes to the same school who might need that internship as well, but doesn't necessarily have access to that? Um, this sort of reminds me of this other sort of uh, reflection that I had about my majoring in art history. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you did, but most people do. Uh, this and this thing that I'm talking about is they sort of like raise their eyebrows when I tell them that I majored in art history at Yale and and, and then tell them that I I come from a first-gen low-income background because putting two and two together sort of in that kind of way it doesn't quite make sense especially when you consider the fact that art history or disciplines like art history are traditionally reserved for people who come from families with safety nets or financial safety nets where they can pursue mm-hmm. careers that stereotypically aren't uh, super lucrative. And I think a, a lot of people, including myself in the beginning, thought and maybe even currently think that that was a huge mistake. You know, instead of majoring in some kind of engineering or um, something that is more uh, immediately sort of profitable right after college. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you that I think at first-gen low-income folks, we usually have a huge sense of duty and responsibility to our families, and that usually complicates the decisions we make around happiness, mm-hmm. around career, around passion. And I think, you know, this, this trite adage that we have about, oh, you know, just follow your passion and everything will work out. I think, one, like that come, that, that sort of, the, the angle that that advice comes from is, is, is one of privilege, because not everyone has... Uh, the access, the resources, or the opportunities to follow what is what is their passion, um, especially if their passion is something like social oriented work that you know pays uh, zero to nothing. And so I think it, it's important for first uh, first gen folks to one like leverage as much as they can, um, like not only the content that they're learning, um, for, not only in school but like in all areas of life, but also the skills. And I think. I'm really grateful to have majored in art history in retrospect because it gave me communication skills that I didn't quite have before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a better uh, school leader be- because of it. 
I might not be a school leader forever, but I think our history definitely uh, contributed a lot to sort of like my, my foundational making of, of myself. So I just wanted to share that to any first-gen low-income folks like really concerned or anxious about selecting what it is they're going to study. And I would encourage them to keep an open mind and continue to practice self-reflection to figure out like how to harmonize these different dimensions mm -hmm. of, uh, of themselves. Yeah, like I, I experienced like the same thing, like, man, like I majored in history of science. Um, yeah, HSHM, right? Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I was just like, after the first year of graduating, I was like, man, should I, should I study like, you know, econ or stuck with computer science or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? Right. Um, but yeah, like things work. Well, I think things tend to work themselves out over time. But then even even still, like people will raise an eyebrow that I say, oh, yeah, I grew up in Arkansas, went to Yale, mm -hmm. majored in history of science. So like, what's that? Um, right. Yeah. Like, it's yeah, exactly get, what it sounds. I get um, that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then. I say, oh, I'm I'm a teacher, and they're like, wait, why would you? Go I to get Yale that all the time too. Why would you go to Yale to be a teacher? Like, oh gosh, yeah, you know, and 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 I think the the audience that it 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 most kind of stings, um, that statement, the the audience from whom that statement most stings is is at, at least for me, it has been my kids. Mm -hmm. um, I I remember my first year of teaching, um, my first year of teaching America, but also my first year of teaching chemistry at Richmond High. I was so excited. I, I'm so just to back up a little bit. Something that you should know about my teaching practice is I do a lot of uh, incorporating myself and my own story into the classroom. Mm -hmm. Not only to inspire the kids, but I think it's important to model for them what success can look like, especially if you are like like a POC, a person of color from a background that might be similar to theirs. It's important for them to see somebody who at least somewhat or does look like them, so that they can say to themselves like, "Oh, like if he or she." looks like me and has done this, like I can do it too. Mm -hmm. So anyways, going back to my story, uh, I had a student ask me my first year of teaching, you went to Yale of all places and you decided to come here to teach like Richmond High, why are, why are you here? And honestly, like I didn't have, I don't, I don't think I ever had a good response to that my, my first year, but um, finally in my third year, I thought about it some more and, and responded with, well, do you not deserve a teacher who went to Yale? And I think it's like spinning it back on them and making them realize that like they are worthy uh, of a teacher who, ha who has a Yale education, mm -hmm. make them realize that, you know, like I, I deserve that just because I deserve it. Um, and so I, and for students who, who go to places like Yale, who, 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 who are interested in social oriented work, social justice oriented work, I think one, like you should, you should, you shouldn't be ashamed of where you went to school and how your interests may or may not align with like the stereotype of, you know, whatever degree you have, you know, it's, you don't have to be, you don't necessarily have to be a doctor, engineer, consultant, or investment banker to be happy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. completely. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about, I guess, productivity. Like, do you have sure. anything or any rituals, any routines that you do that yeah. you, that you swear by that you think would be helpful for young people to do or anyone, yeah. anyone to do? Yeah, for sure. Um, definitely uh, some good nuggets that I've learned along my non-linear career trajectory that I, I'd love to share. Um, first, I just want to give some context in terms of my take on motivation. I think motivation in the traditional sense when people talk about it, to me at least, motivation is garbage. 
Motivation is garbage to me, and I'll tell you why. Because motivation has never been there for me when I've needed it the most. It's never there for me when I need to get up early in the morning at 5 a.m. and it's dark and it's cold and it's rainy outside. It's never there for me when I need to do extra reps at the end of a heavy set in the gym. It's never there for me when I know I need to wash dishes and do laundry, when I have a million and one things to do on my to-do list. Motivation is never there for me. I think it's absolute garbage. So what's worked for me has been developing strong senses of focus, of routine and of consistency. And uh, those are the things that sort of take care of what needs to be done when motivation doesn't work, at least for me. Mm -hmm. I think what I've learned is it's the little things that are hard. It's, it's the little things that are hard, like, like I said earlier, getting up in the morning or the decisions not to snap at your kids when you're having a really rough day of teaching or um, the, the decisions to speak up in a meeting when you're in front of the whole staff um, the decision to have that crucial conversation with your principal about maybe getting a stipend for the extra work that you're doing. I think those teeny tiny decisions, decisions that happen every day are the most difficult, but if we know how to master them, um, can really open up a world of opportunity for us. And so my life like totally changed after I learned about the five second rule. And the five second rule was discussed initially in a TED talk by Mel Robbins, who wasn't always a motivational speaker. She actually sort of found out about the five second rule through her own adversity. Um, and she wrote a book about it. Basically, uh, the five second rule is, if you know you're about to do something that you don't feel like doing, and let's be honest here, like we usually don't feel like doing the thing that we need to do, mm -hmm. um, count down from five. So five, four, three, two, one. And that counting down process interrupts uh, sort of like this habit loop um, in your prefrontal cortex. And I've actually read the science that she's explained in her book. And as a science teacher, I, you know, <laughs> I don't have any issues with the science, um, but it sort of uh, interrupts this habit loop that you formed uh, from historically uh, not doing the thing that you're supposed to do. Uh, and it gets you to do the thing. Um, but the key is for you to physically move. You have to move before you count down to one. And that has helped me, um, just changed my life completely around. And in terms of uh, really sitting down and getting the nitty gritty work done, I use the Pomodoro technique. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so the Pomodoro technique, for those of you who aren't familiar, is where you set your timer for 25 minutes and uh, you put away your phone. I, my phone is actually perpetually on do not disturb. Um, and so I check it you know, every so often when I need to. Um, but anyways, uh, 25 minutes. And during those 25 minutes, you intensely without distractions, do the thing that you need to do, whether that's uh, read a paragraph or uh, do this task or uh, you know, cl clean up your house, some kind of task that you need to do. And then once those 25 minutes are up, um, you assign yourself a five minute break. But for me, what's worked is I actually force myself to take that break because if I sit down, I sort of continue to work, I'll experience burnout a lot more quickly than uh, I would uh, if, I hadn't, if, if I had not taken uh, my breaks. So the Pomodoro technique and the five second rule have worked really well for me. Okay, nice. Yeah. Um, I, I, I actually use the Pomodoro technique. Um, but this is my first time hearing the five second rule. So I can't wait to research it. More. Yes, it's amazing. I love it. <laughs> um, so do you have any quotes that you like to think of often? Any quotes that I like to think of often? Um, 
I don't have any quotes off the top of my head, but I'm actually in my apartment right now. And above my workstation, I have the lyrics of a particular song printed out. Um, and uh, the lyrics of the song belong to the song Rise by Katy Perry. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I might have uh, mentioned in that Google form you made me fill out that this song has recently been um, uh, really inspiring me recently. But I think what's most powerful about it is uh, all the way at the end, she concludes the song by saying, I will still rise. Um, and to me, that's powerful because not only has she said it, but Maya Angelou has said it um, in a formal setting. And there are many different iterations of uh, this lyric as well. I think sort of I will still rise captures this uh, theme of like grit, resilience and resourcefulness that we talked about in the beginning of our podcast. So that's a that's a nice, you know, circling back there. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any parting words or advice for that kid in Richmond or the kid in, I don't know, New York that who wants to go to college? Um, continue to be metaphorically hungry, to practice curiosity, and to always develop yourself. Because if you do those things, you're going to inevitably evolve. And uh, you're going to have a, a different iteration of you. And whether, whether that's a different iteration of you in work, in your personal life, values, beliefs, whatever. Um, and different levels uh, of your life are going to require different levels uh, of you. So I think um, I would encourage uh, listeners to keep an open mind, um, consistently uh, do self-reflection, and realize that, you know, this, this is like this evolution, these, these different iterations, right? That's just part of a silly thing that we just call life. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode. Um, I really appreciate the time you took out of your weekend um, of course. to talk with me. I know yeah. your life is crazy. and <laughs> we, A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for everyone listening, I'll, as always, I'll put the show notes on my blog and on my social media accounts. And thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. All right. Bye, y'all. Thank you.